Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that because of the justifying power of Jesus Christ's blood, that we can stand in your presence, Lord, and we can enjoy sweet fellowship with you. I pray this morning that you would remind us of our great salvation that you accomplished through the work of redemption, a miracle unprecedented, never to be equaled in history, that prepared for you a people who will worship not only so long as this earth tarries, but for eternity. Lord, as we hear evidence of your salvation among us this morning, may it draw our attention and worship before you, and may each of us consider what you have done to ransom our soul from hell into the loving arms of the steadfast love of our Heavenly Father, made possible by the shed blood of Christ. And I pray if there are any here who do not know you, Lord, that they might be introduced to you through the testimony of those of us who by your grace alone have found redemption. Now we pray a blessing on this testimony we will hear for your glory and your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To invite Rachel Reedy to share with you this morning her story of meeting Christ. morning. I'm going to pray first because I feel really nervous (laughs) and I know that the Lord will help me, especially if I pray. So dear Lord, I just thank you so much, God, for bringing me here today. Lord, I just thank you for everything that you have brought me through. God, there are so many in this world that don't know you, but I have the privilege of knowing you because you chose me before the foundation of the universe. God, I thank you for that. Lord, I just pray that you would guide me and lead me as I share my testimony. Lord, help me not to be nervous. God, I just pray that, I know this comes from my heart, Lord, and I just pray that anyone here, Lord, who hears my testimony would be blessed by it. Pray that people would grow, Lord, through what they hear. And I just pray that more people um, would be touched and want to share their testimonies because of what they hear what they hear, Lord. So I thank you for this opportunity, and I just pray that you would just bless it, Lord. In your name, amen. Okay, so I don't think I really need to be nervous, because looking out, I pretty much know everyone here. So, I <laughs> But um, I wrote everything down, because I wouldn't do well on the fly. Um, I'm excited for the opportunity to share my testimony. It has been so easy for me to put it off, because in my perfectionism, I find myself struggling with, um, am I there yet? Thinking I need to have arrived. I am often more apt to think of what is wrong with me and all I am struggling with and battling through than look back at where God has brought me and what he has saved me from. Writing my testimony has been a good reminder of this. I was born to imperfect but believing parents on June 4th, 1987. I was the youngest of three kids and have two older brothers. My parents had me baptized covenantally as a baby. To me, even though I obviously have no memory of the water being sprinkled on my forehead, this baptism was incredibly meaningful. I see it as my godly heritage. I was a helpless baby who could not choose Christ, and yet out of all the people in the world, God chose to give me believing parents 
who would raise me in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They would take me to church every Sunday and Wednesday, send me on mission trips, summer camps, weekend retreats, and worldview seminars. Praise be to God. I don't have a specific memory of when I accepted Christ. As long as I can remember, I desired to please him and walk in his ways. I remember telling my mom at a very young age that I was going to try not to sin that day. I vaguely remember her explaining that that would be impossible. I also remember the first lie I told and the guilt that followed. These sound like silly little childhood memories, but they are special to me because they were the building blocks for my full understanding of the gospel, as well as God's sovereignty as I got older. Um, in my youngest years, we lived in Egan, and I had several friends who lived on my block. This included my little puppy love boyfriend. Even though the things that happened between him and me would be viewed by your average secular psychologist as normal and fine, I was plagued by guilt for a long time. I saw myself as blemished rather than the spotless bride that Christ saw me as. We moved from that neighborhood when I was in first grade, and I had to start a new school partway through the year. By third grade, I had become the popular kid to bully. Kids are just ruthless when it comes to little girls with freckles and red hair. The only friend I had at school was Fickle. She would act like my best friend when we were hanging out at home, but as soon as we got to school, she pretty much led the charge in teasing me. I remember hiding and crying under my desk at my own birthday party because girls were so mean. I really believed I was worthless and ugly. During that period of time, my real friends were all outside of school. I had met and really connected with the granddaughter of the elderly couple who lived across the street from us, who also had red hair and freckles, but was homeschooled, so she did not receive the due penalty for it. And eventually another granddaughter of the elderly couple across the street. It was a small world because come to find out, she lived in Pine River less than a mile from my grandma. Her dad and my dad rode the bus together back in their school days. At this point, I basically lived for the occasional weekend up north visiting my grandparents, Kayla, once she had moved back from Fargo, and the neighbor girl, who was also the same neighbor, neighbor girl in Kayla's story. I was really just an emotional wreck at this point. I really believed I was fat, ugly, and uncool. I was struggling at school and begged my mom to homeschool me like the other kids like the other family we knew. At some point during my fourth grade year, my mom had me tested for ADD. I remember the test so well. I had to sit in front of the computer screen for a period of time in a room by myself. On the screen would appear a box. If there was a dot in the box, I was instructed to hit the button of a control they gave me. Like any bored kid wanting attention, I kept hitting the control. Then came the diagnosis, ADD. I was put on Ritalin and it was that simple. Within a week of being put on the drug, I suddenly felt really goofy. I remember sitting in my desk at school and out of nowhere being confused about everything and everyone. Can't really describe my feelings, I just know that I began to sob and was taken out of class. I was completely unconsolable. My mom came and picked me up and the drug was discontinued. Praise God, I really believe I would be a different person today had I remained on that drug. I think I stayed home from school for close to a week. I never wanted to go back to school. By the end of the year, partially through the, through the influence of the family we knew who homeschooled, my parents made the decision to homeschool me and my brother Ryan the following year. I was then homeschooled in fifth and sixth grade. 
This was definitely a struggle in my family. It wasn't real structured, and my mom worked overnights as an RN and slept many days. My parents were having a lot of issues with my oldest brother at this point, and there was a lot of raised voices and tension in our home. There was a reoccurring theme in our household of laying down boundaries, usually with a family meeting of some sort. This would only last for a little while before it, would <laughs> it was given up. Even though I would push boundaries too, there was something inside of me that desperately wanted true boundaries that would stand the test of time. Around this time, we were starting to search for a new church since my parents had grown frustrated with our current church. We ended up at Faith Covenant Church when I was in either fifth or sixth grade. By the end of sixth grade, my mom told me that they were thinking about sending us back to public school. I felt better about it at this point than I used to, but it was I was certainly still a bit hesitant. I did see the girls I used to go to school with occasionally because I participated in various sports as well as band where I would see my old classmates. In spring of sixth grade, I started softball and there was a new girl. I had never before met on my softball team that was one year younger than me. She was homeschooled and attended church as well. Partway through the softball season, I was particularly bored and found myself calling her one day. The next thing I knew, we were inseparable. Finally, a friend who lived close by with my same sense of humor and Christian background. We hung out and had sleepovers constantly. Kelsey's mom told my mom about a school Kelsey and her brother would be attending come fall called Cyber Village Academy, where you were essentially homeschooled three days a week and went to school the other two. They provided a computer you would use for school at home. Even though this was a public charter school, I found myself surrounded by mostly Christian kids and had the best support network I had ever known. Things were finally starting to look up for me in the social sphere. In an effort to prevent this from becoming just a life story rather than a testimony, I should say where I think I was spiritually at this point. There are just things I just didn't understand then that I am just now, in the last eight years or so, able to see and pinpoint as to where I really was. I can remember many a time laying on the floor of my bedroom, looking up at the ceiling just in awe that I was even alive. I remember thinking about all the genetic potential between my parents. I remember thinking, wow, of all the different babies that could have been made, God put me here. This just blew my mind. On top of that, my parents were planning on being done having children after my two brothers were apparently more than a handful. As far as what I was learning at church, I don't want to speak ill of youth group or anything, but I think, there were, I think things were generally just more emotional. That night, partly, partly be, sorry, that might partly be just because me and all my fellow students were at that emotional point in life. I don't, I don't think I really knew and understood what daily life was for a Christian. I think the task to me was as simple as trying to do things for God and witness to others. I specifically remember a few times where deep and hard questions were asked by fellow students, like, so what happens to all the people who have never heard the gospel? Do they go to hell too? I can't honestly say I remember the answer, but I think it was probably less than satisfactory to the student who asked it. I just know there was a depth missing. As I got older, I would say there were very few kids in the youth group that were truly there to encourage one another in their Christian walk, as opposed to being there for cool music, meeting cute guys, games, and funny teachings from the youth director. So 
so back to my story. By the time eighth grade rolled around, I was surrounded with friends and even getting some attention from boys, which felt great at that time, but still didn't totally convince me that I was pretty and not fat. By the end of the eighth grade, there was a particular boy I had a crush on. He was the brother of one of my closest friends, also in my grade. Come to find out, after many hours on AOL Instant Messenger, he liked me too. There were two problems though. Number one, I wasn't allowed to date until I was 16. And two, the school we were attending ended in eighth grade and he wouldn't be going to, and he would be going to school in downtown St. Paul um, at a school called Minnesota Business Academy while I would be sent to a private school called Lutheran High School. We saw each other whenever I would get together with my friend Anna, his sister. More on this later. At this point, I still very much enjoyed going up north to see my cousin Kayla and the neighbor girl up there. As far as spirituality is concerned, the neighbor girl was probably my only friend who was really truly challenging me spiritually. She had gone from being a sometimes bad influence, encouraging me to sneak off to smoke in the woods, to us having conversations that were deeper and more challenging than anywhere else I can think of. Certainly wasn't being addressed in my youth group. We always had a blast together. My brother and her and her brothers and sisters would spend all day long playing every sport known to man, which was my dream at that time. But the fact was, her and Kayla lived up north and I still lived in the cities, much to my dismay. The end of eighth grade was a really sad day for me. Those were the two years that really turned things around for me. It would also mean my best friend at the, at the time, Kelsey and I would be separated as she was a year younger than me. Then of course there was the fact that I would see less of my big crush. I started high school at Lutheran High School and absolutely hated it. Looking back, this really was a choice I had made to hate it. It was not bad at all. All I could think about was going to the same high school as David. I wound up throwing the biggest teenage temper tantrum known to man and convinced my parents to let me switch to MBA at the end of the first quarter at LHS. Part of what I use, used to convince my parents was my heart to witness to the people at that school. This was not a complete lie, as looking back, I really did have a heart to witness and remember doing so many, many times at the school. There were a lot of lost souls there. So at the young age of 14, I began to ride the city bus with Brandon, Kelsey's older brother, who was also a good friend of mine, from suburban Burnsville to downtown St. Paul every day. Things took off with David, and before I knew it, we were dating. My parents were okay with us hanging out and probably suspected we liked each other, but I did not tell them we were dating because I was not allowed to date. I don't even remember how long we actually dated. I just know it came to a point where I felt really guilty about our relationship. We found ourselves more physically involved than we knew we should be and both felt bad about it. I really tie this back to me feeling blemished to start with. It was my failure to believe that Christ had really made me clean. I already felt spotted and blemished. I remember telling my, telling my friend Kelsey when it was popular in Christian culture to save the kiss for the wedding day that she was lucky she could do this, but I had already messed it up as a five-year-old. I think we had been together for almost for about four months or so when I had a real serious conversation with him that I felt I needed to just seek the Lord and felt bad that we were doing this all behind our parents' backs. Of course, I became distracted by other things and found myself soaking up attention from other guys as well. 
I would find myself having spiritual conversations trying to tell people about the Lord, but being flirtatious at the same time. At this point, I was getting all the attention from guys a girl could want, yet none of it was truly filling me up or making me whole. I was left wanting. High school moved on, and David and I were back and forth. I never officially dated anyone else throughout high school. However, I did hit rock bottom when I became close friends with a guy who caught my attention with his chivalry, giving up his seat for me the first time I met him. It was so uncommon that it spoke volumes to me. He was so interested, interesting to talk to, but was an atheist. I truly had a heart for him and wanted to see him come to know the Lord. However, I found my emotions getting in the way. Before I knew it, I found myself falling for him. We had spent chunks of time talking on the phone. It was usually about religion. We had some classes together at school and had some ridiculous joke going that we were husband and wife. The next thing I knew, even though I knew I wouldn't date him as he was not a Christian, I became involved in a physical relationship with him. This was invigorating to my sin nature and devastating to the girl who wanted to serve God and do the right thing. I was deep in the depths of despair. He really had no idea how big of a deal this whole thing was to me, as it seemed it was relatively normal to him to act this way. Looking back, I cannot even believe the ways God protected me during this time. Somehow God worked in him to stop our physical relationship, literally saying, I can't do this to you. You are Rachel, not just one of all the other girls. That statement floors me to this day. What an awesome God we serve that in my lowest, while I was turning away from God to do what I wanted, he protected me through a person that was not even one of his children. Throughout that whole relationship, if you want to call it that, I had kept the neighbor girl well informed. She always encouraged me to do the right thing. Thank God the whole thing collapsed when he graduated a year before me. By my senior year of high school, though I had gone on mission trips, summer camps, and to Summit Ministries in Colorado, I really craved a deeper relationship with the Lord. I could visibly see, looking back over my high school experience, that I was in many ways not following the Lord. I was known as a prude. People called the vehicle I drove the church on wheels. I was unapologetic about my faith and yet was still dressing to impress and soaking up all the attention I could. I knew I was going nowhere fast and I wanted a change. Every time I got together with my friend from up north, she was always challenging me and discussing theological topics I had never even heard of or learned about before, and yet they piqued my interest. I could see how they would positively affect my Christian walk. I visited her church in Emily several times while coming up north to the farm. When I graduated from high school, I moved up north and lived with my grandma on the same property as my cousin Kayla. This was an absolute dream to me. I missed some of my friends in the cities, especially Kelsey, but I had reached a point where I knew I was going nowhere in my relationship with the Lord. I really moved up north to seek the Lord and devote myself to him. This was truly a special time in my life on both a fun scale and a spiritual scale. <coughs> Through going out to Emily to the youth group at Cornerstone, I was introduced to John Piper and his teachings. For the first time, certain things were really clicking. The biggest thing was God's sovereignty. I came to grips with my own depravity. Looking back at my life, I was able to see my selfishness, pride, and refusal to truly surrender to receive God's grace. I searched my heart day after day and was really able to see that apart from the Lord, I was totally depraved. 
I remember reading Romans over and over again as the gospel penetrated my heart. I came to grips with God's sovereignty and his and this further deepened my appreciation for his grace that he poured out on me. And I'm going to read a passage that really, really meant a lot to me, especially during this time. It's Romans 8, 28 through 39. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with, with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Actually, sorry, hang on a second. I think I might have it mixed up here. Okay, nope, that's right. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. This part especially meant, has meant a lot to me. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither depth nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. <clears throat> so during this time, on a personal level, I was more accountable than I had ever been. I was flourishing in my friendship with a neighbor girl and loving spending so much time with her and Kayla. I began school in the fall at Central Lakes College and Kayla went off to basic training, which was a very sad day. Though I was still growing in my walk with the Lord, some of the excitement of the new move had worn off and the fun of summer days and nights were over. I was involved in a Bible study on the topic of soteriology that took place at, he was not the pastor then, he was the, the youth pastor then, but Ken's house. One night, I remember real specifically, Aaron, Pastor Reedy's son, took the opportunity to share the exact same passage in Romans that I just read that had come to mean so much um, to me. He became choked up as he read the passage, as it also meant a lot to him. Though it was just a feeling, I felt a real sense of connection to him as he read this passage. Him and I talked a little while afterward. He had been around the whole summer, fall, and winter as well, but I had hardly spoken to him or gotten to know him. He actually intimidated me quite a bit. I remember avoiding looking at him because I thought he had a really intense stare. 
before. <laughs> Everyone knows it's true. <laughs> um, he was also a little too cool for me and kind of the class clown type. <laughs> Relatively soon after that, he messaged me on MySpace. <laughs> we began corresponding on there. He told me he was <laughs> he told me he was restless and explained it better later in person sitting at the Carlton's kitchen table. It was so fun to get to know him. He started showing up a couple times here and there at my waitressing job, Antlers. One would think it would be really obvious to me that he liked me, but as much as I liked him, I was in denial that someone so great after everything I had been through and the silly boys I had liked in the past would actually be pursuing me, a pastor's kid nonetheless. Aaron came to the cities with Andrew and Nathan one weekend when I was down there with my friend Jenna. They came to my parents after an evening church service and ended up staying until the wee hours of the night. Aaron sat down with me and ended up telling me his whole testimony that night. It was extremely powerful to me, and I think he would say too that it was great to share it with me. I think this was the turning point where it was clear that there was something between us. We were mutually encouraged by each other, or we, we were mutually encouraged by one another, and God and God's amazing grace had God's amazing grace in common. Before I knew it, a couple weeks later, we found ourselves walking about 40 laps around the path at Kiwanis Park in Brainerd. He took this opportunity to share his feelings for me and ask if he could pursue me. That night was like a dream. I remember just being in disbelief as I drove home, pinching myself, wondering if this could possibly be happening to me. The days and weeks that followed found a significant amount of time spent with one another, soaking up every last minute possible. A few weeks into the relationship, my neighbor friend was questioning if we were a little too deep, a little too fast. Aaron's best friend was also questioning him. The next thing I knew, at the very same place the relationship began, Aaron was telling me that he adored me and that his intention was to marry me, but that after talking to another person he trusted, felt he should use a little more restraint. Though we were still together, we hung out a bit less and pretty much didn't touch or even hug for quite a while. Around this time, Kayla came back from her military training and her and I moved out and lived together in the Cross Lake 50 Lakes area. Our neighbor friend also moved away to the cities, which was a very sad day. Kayla was dating Jake and Aaron and I drew close again when the time seemed right. Though I had started school to finish my associates in arts degree, I decided not to continue because of the seriousness of Aaron and my relationship. I thought we'd be getting married and there would be no point in increasing my student loan debt as I planned to become a stay-at-home mom anyway. On our agenda, we thought for sure we'd be married and having children relatively soon. Somehow things got really complicated. On one level, we were doing great. We definitely loved spending time with each other and encouraged one another in the Lord. He was the strong Christian man I always desired to end up with. My parents liked him, his parents liked me, everything seemed good. On another level, some practical things were just not falling into place, and it was looking more and more hopeless for us to get married anytime soon. At this point, we began to struggle physically as marriage seemed so far out. That became, wh that became one of the more depressing winters as Kayla and I were living together and both struggling in our relationships. I always received encouragement from my friends, though. I had become very close with Jamie and Nikki, who wanted nothing but to see Aaron and I succeed in a godly relationship. 
They always helped in any way they could. In the summer of 2007, shortly after we had officially begun Providence Community Church, an event happened that rocked my world. My best friend, the neighbor girl who had become engaged to a man Aaron and I had introduced her to, went from being my closest friend to completely unreachable. She shut off her cell phone. She set, shut her cell phone off, and the next thing I knew, I went from having my bridesmaid dress in hand to now, almost six and a half years later, never having heard from her. At the same time, we lost the head pastor, Aaron's best friend who had begun Providence with Ken. This was a very difficult time for both Aaron and I. Even though it was hard, it really challenged me to make sure my faith was in God, not in human beings that I think are ultra-wise, but in the grand scheme of things, truly fallible. Meanwhile, Aaron and I continued to struggle. Because of how many times Aaron and I were back and forth, I can't even really remember how it all began or when it all began. All I know is I was the first one to break up with him. I know that I never stopped loving him. We always ended up back together. I always seemed to think that breaking things off would resolve the issues, though never really giving up hope that we would eventually be back together and God would do his work. Though I loved Aaron, there were some trust issues that I, that I was wanting to be resolved. I had more of the divide to take care of issues mindset, whereas Aaron had more of the conquer mindset. As things were quite complicated with Aaron and I at the time, I aimlessly decided to go back to school. It was kind of the I gotta do something mindset. I got accepted into the nursing program and the following year found myself living with, doing the LPN program with, working with, and going to church with Kayla. Even though we are both struggling in our relationships, we are drawing closer together. Kayla had changed in many ways and become a very close friend. We were able to confide in each other about many things. As the LPN year came to an end, Aaron and I had still been back and forth. I found myself applying for the RN program. My philosophy was always, well, I guess if I get in, it's the Lord. Can't say I had a real specific calling from the Lord that I was to be a nurse. It was more of an it's working type scenario. By the time the end of my RN year was nearing, Kayla was getting married and Aaron and I were still back and forth. We just couldn't seem to stay away from each other. There were many wonderful things about our relationship, yet there were some very pointed things that kept us from moving forward. It became kind of a vicious cycle where you feel like you just can't get to the next step. We were both growing weary. As soon as I graduated, I landed a job as nurse manager with the Good Samaritan Society. Kayla got married the following fall and I was actually opening myself up to the possibility that things might just work out with Aaron and I. That it might be time to take the next step. One evening, Aaron asked me if he could have the following Saturday of my time. I was giddy thinking that we could be getting back together and actually move on to the next step in life after five years of back and forth. Aaron had built a house out in Jenkins and was probably hoping for some company in the future. Saturday came and I didn't know where Aaron was taking me on our surprise date. The next thing I knew, we were pulling into my grandma's driveway and he was taking me back to my dad's land where we had so many precious walks and conversations in the past. We walked and talked and I enjoyed every moment of it. When we were nearing the end of our walk, we were in between the woods and a beautiful field of sweet clover. Aaron was handing me sweet clovers to eat and then said, here's one and pulled out a ring instead. You can't even imagine the shock I experienced. Here I thought he was going to ask me to be his girlfriend, and instead he asked me to be his wife. He had already asked my dad and all. As you all know, I said yes. 
We were engaged for six months and got married on April 2nd, 2011. I moved in with Aaron and we started the adventure of living off the grid with no electricity or running water. We gardened and had animals, providing for as many of our own needs as possible. This was no easy feat as neither of us grew up this way, but we truly see this as the vision for our family. Six months into our adventure, we became pregnant and George was born July 23rd, 2012. As far as children are concerned, which I believe are a natural outflow of marriage, God had done a lot in my life in the area of my thoughts on childbearing. When I first moved up here, I heard for the first time, yes, sad that it was the first time, the idea of surrendering your room over to God for him to be the one to open and close it. There were many conversations, and I saw this lived before my very eyes. My background was growing up in a family where every need and many wants were provided. My father was very financially sound, but my parents did not embrace the open womb philosophy, more like the big plan philosophy. There were many times growing up I begged for additional siblings. I loved big families, but no siblings ever came. Though I'd come a long way in my journey of embracing children, even at the time of engagement, in my mind, it seemed like a good idea to wait and just do natural family planning for about six months. I don't even know why I thought this. I think even though I really wanted kids, I just wanted a little nugget of control and wanted to spend time with Aaron getting settled, especially since we knew I'd be a stay-at-home mom, and the longer we could have my income, the better. One night, we were listening to a message at the Carlton's with a few others after many people had gone home. We ended up discussing the issue as a group. As soon as Aaron and I left, Aaron graciously made it clear to me that we would not be trying to stop any blessings. What a man. In God's infinite wisdom, he waited six months to give us a child, and I know his timing was exactly right. Since then, this is what I have come to believe. In the words of Nancy Lee DeMoss, quote, every child that is born has the potential to thwart Satan's purposes by receiving God's grace and becoming a subject of the kingdom of God. So anything that hinders or discourages women from fulfilling their God-given calling to be bearers and nurturers of life furthers Satan's efforts, unquote. I don't want to further Satan's efforts. I have also found this quote from Mary Pride, an ex-feminist, to be absolutely true. Family planning is the mother of abortion. A generation had to be indoctrinated in the ideal of planning children around personal convenience before abortion could become popular. We Christians raise an outcry against abortion today, and rightly so. But the reason we have to fight these battles today is because we lost them 30 years ago. Once couples began to look upon children as creatures of their own making, who they could plan into their life as they chose or not at all, all reverence for human life was lost. Abortion is first of all a heart attitude. Me first, my career first, my reputation first, my convenience first, my financial plans first. And these exact same choices are what family planning, which the church has endorsed for three decades, is all about. Unquote. I have to confess that even as a woman who gladly embraces the blessings God has bestowed upon me in his timing, I still have many days where this is still my heart attitude, especially my plans first. I find myself getting extremely frustrated when I can't get done what I want to because George is having a high maintenance day or something goes awry with Aaron's day, affecting me. Motherhood and marriage is a sacrifice in every way, but God has used it to sharpen and mold me, and I have a lot more molding that needs to be done. 
Whether speaking of marriage or bearing children, I can vouch for this fact. None of it is easy. Especially after having George, we went through a very difficult time. As for the first time ever, I had to trust Aaron completely for his God-given role as provider. This has definitely been an area I've had to continually die to myself and trust God with. Because it is always my temptation to usurp this responsibility and carry it on my shoulders after being <sighs> and carried on my shoulders. God has worked in Aaron and I both in tremendous ways, and we are continually blessed, continually blessed as God provides. I have learned to encourage Aaron in his role and embrace my own role as wife, as a wife and mother. As far as my perfectionism, I still struggle with it. I look at my house and my kitchen counters and everything I am not getting done and feel like a total failure. Sometimes I look at George and think of all the things I let him get away with because I'm too lazy to correct and fear I am inca an in incapable mother, completely unworthy to raise him. Other times I look at missed opportunities to serve my husband or harsh words that come out of my mouth and look at myself with disgust. It is quite often in a day that I think condemning thoughts towards myself. As a common theme, this comes when I'm relying on my own strength. Because when I do that, I truly do fail in all these areas. But God's grace is sufficient and often works through Aaron reminding me not to condemn myself or rely on my own strength. God forgives, and God is faithful to sanctify. I'm so excited for the next chapter in our lives. Though there is still great struggle, as always, in the Christian life, I truly stand behind my husband's vision that we are to have children for the glory of God and that we are both to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. As the scripture says, you shall teach them diligently to your children, speaking of God's commandments, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So that's my testimony. And I'll just pray here in closing. God, I just thank you so much for the opportunity to share this, Lord, and I just pray that it was a blessing to people, and Lord, I know that I've grown through this, Lord, and God, I pray that you would just continue to teach me in these areas I'm struggling with, Lord, just perfectionism, and God, just the ways that it's just easy for me as a wife to just usurp my husband's authority, Lord, and God, I know that this life is a process, Lord, and sanctification is a process, and I know that you will be faithful to continue to sanctify me, and I just pray that you would just um, use these words to bless everyone here. In your name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you, Rachel. Praise be to the Lord. Keep your head bowed in prayer for just a moment, if you would. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that demonstrated in this meeting today, just a few moments that we have together. Lord, is this invaluable truth, that though your word stands unchanging and fixed in your heart and in the declarative power of your prophet's word, it was written, Lord, in the case of our psalm this morning, thousands of years ago, Father, and stands today, nevertheless, in your loving kindness and in your personal care for all of your own, you take your word and you write it on the tables of our heart. We've heard a story, Lord Jesus, of the personal effects of the encounter with the gospel, which changes the day-to-day -day life of a believer. We thank you for that testimony. 
that your word stands immutable, and that you use it, Lord, and write it on our hearts so as to guide and direct us into the ways and the paths of eternal life. I pray, Lord, now as we go to your authoritative word in Psalm 33, that you would write this portion of Scripture on all of our hearts as well, that we might worship and glorify you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to speak with you briefly this morning, speak to you briefly this morning from Psalm chapter 33. And the title of our message this morning will be Unequivocal Worship. That is, uncompromising, clear, bold, distinctive, definitive worship. Unequivocal worship. That title is my best attempt in two words to summarize what I gather from these words that we read in Psalm 33. So begin with me in verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise benefits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him with a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all His works work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. He gathered the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom He has chosen as His heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where He sits enthroned, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, and on those who hope in His steadfast love, that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, and our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let Your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in You. Psalm 33 unequivocally describes the heart, and the authority behind our worship. There is no one to worship save God alone, the God of Scripture, revealed to us in Jesus Christ in a way where we can understand and communicate with Him on the heart level. There is no other experience that the believer has that avails him the opportunity to have a meaningful spiritual experience. I'll go farther and say... There is no spiritual experience that any individual can have on the earth since God has created man to the time when he closes this world and this whole space-time continuum is finished. There is no spiritual experience, rightly labeled worship, that any individual can have that will experience God in a real and meaningful way outside 
of, rege- of redemption that is offered by His sovereign hand alone. There is other methods, there is other means, there is other objects of worship. Every single one is false. And it is a slight on God Almighty. And it is blasphemy before Him and a stench in His nostrils. Hear, O Israel, the God of Scripture echoes and declares. Hear, O Christian, hear, O individual who has ever been born. The Lord is one God and there is no other. In the Scriptures we are told that Israel, the first commandment, is to have no other gods before the only God that was and is and is to come. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. He is sovereignly the author of all of creation and He is sovereignly the author of the only way of redemption. So worship is unequivocally rooted and grounded in Scripture. Psalm 33 definitively outlines actual worship. The context and descriptions are devoid in this chapter, Psalm 33. All of these ideas connected to worship are absolutely divested and devoid of our modern compartmentalization notions of religion. That is, today, even within the church, we have these compartments that we like to think of life as. Well, I go and do worship on Sunday, and then I go to my job. This is this segment of life. This is my spiritual segment of life. No, worship is comprehensive. Worship circumscribes all of life, experience, and consciousness. That is, in worship, to worship is, in truth, to be fully saturated in the Lordship of our God, such that it affects our life and our thinking comprehensively all across the board. By this, by this measure, that is discernment, being, I'm, I'm sorry, worship, being an all-inclusive idea for the life and lifestyle of a believer, by this standard, we can judge ourselves and judge our notions of worship. Has the spirit of the age... Has false thinking of today conveniently redefined its terms so as to co-opt the unsuspecting, impressionable consumer? By this standard in the immutable scriptures, do we examine our, let us examine ourselves and see if we find our understanding of worship lacking. Let me give you an illustration. I just thank Danny for sending me an email that brought to my attention an interesting event that happened in a, not too long ago. I'm not exactly sure of the time frame. There was a video taken by a cell phone that went viral on the internet. There was a supposed worship service that took place in a church in Germany. This church in Germany was called, is called the Memorial Church of the Reformation. It's in Spire. In this church, there's a statue commemorating the Reformation and its chief proponent, its chief German proponent certainly, and the spark of the Reformation, who we know today as Martin Luther. This church was built and stands as a monument to worship that was defined by that uh, historical reality of calling the church to repentance and faith and a grounding on the lordship of Jesus Christ and His Holy Word exclusively and unequivocally. And so it was that the Reformation, through, yes, fallible human beings, was championed not on the ground of their own merit, but on the ground and merit of Jesus Christ. And to a church... That at that time, this is speaking 500 years ago now or just about, was totally co-opted by medieval thinking and humanism and was dead 
in many cases in their trespasses and sins, though they claimed to be alive, they needed to hear that Jesus Christ alone was Lord. Perhaps what's most troubling about this video is 500 years later, there was a supposed worship service that was recently called in this church, which included representatives of Christianity, so-called, and Islam. And so there was this service to call for unity between the Muslims and the Christians because the Islamic worldview has been making such strides within Europe. And so this uh, concert unfolded, and there was music and everything else, and in the middle of this display, a Muslim imam rose to give a call to prayer. And just as he began to chant his you know, haunting melody in a minor key that ought to chill the heart of every true Christian in the room, one lone woman in the balcony stood up. She unfurled the flag of Germany, and on it was written, Jesus Christ is Lord over Germany. And she began to shout in between this manufactured solemn moment, Jesus Christ alone is Lord over Germany. I break this curse. She said, here I stand. I can do no other. Save the church of Martin Luther. Again, Jesus Christ alone is Lord over Germany. I break this curse. As you might imagine, she was promptly ushered out. And so that uh, fake worship service, which was nothing but idolatry, as she rightly identified it to be, could continue. Let me just say parenthetically, I will call out his name. Glenn Beck was responsible for so-called uniting three religious worldviews in an ecumenical service in Israel, I don't know, a year or two ago. Representatives from Judaism, Islam, and Christianity were all supposed to meet for a quote-unquote unifying worship service. Let me tell you, no less blasphemous than what this woman stood against. There is no worship except under Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me ask you, If you have false idolatrous claims in one religion and you have the true and living God and His Son Jesus Christ and the triune revealed God of Scripture in another, if they get together and pretend they have spiritual unity, there is another God over them. And they are no longer worshiping the one true God of Scripture. It could be humanism, could be a false idea and notion of man, but it is not worship. Let us be very clear in this age of mixed and muddled ideas. Later, this woman was interviewed by the press, and she revealed and disclosed her full name. She was asked upon doing so if she feared for her own safety. She responded, listen, church, this one lone woman, she's been labeled on the Internet the the brave little German woman. This is what she said. I know my God, the living God of the Bible, can protect me as long as he wants. When my time is over, I will go to him. I know my God, the living God of the Bible, can protect me as long as he wants. When my time is over, I will go to him. There was one temperamental man, one Martin Luther, who nailed some rabble-rousing, provocative statements to the door of Wittenberg Church some 500 years ago, who fell into a similar category. Years before, centuries before him, there was one obscure monk who jumped into the ring with the gladiators who were killing Christians and said these games must stop and was killed. 
time and again, there has, through, through history and in the Word of God, remember Stephen, who was stoned by the religious elite, the worldview of his day, chose to pick him as a representative example and killed him while he proclaimed the gospel time and again through history. God has chosen the weak, the foolish, the lonely, but the bold and convicted to raise up the standard of truth and say, there is only one God, the God of Scripture. And this living God of the Bible can protect me as long as He wants. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before they're thrown into the fire. Even if your God, who is powerful enough to do so, does not choose to save us from your hand, neither will we serve your idol nor bow before the image you have set up. They could have made a compromise. They could have struck a deal. But they knew if they did, it was no longer worship. And so in these times like this, and perhaps we've witnessed one in our day, there is a call to return to the clarity of Scripture. Unequivocal worship. Psalms like Psalm 33, which give us the integral aspects of what true worship is. True worship isn't unity and something that isn't Christ. True worship isn't conformity to a worldview that would deny the exclusive truth claims of the gospel. True worship isn't the best democratic idea an apostate church can come up with. True worship is faithfulness, fidelity to the revealed word of Scripture. No questions asked, no holes barred, and no compromise until Jesus comes back for us or calls us home as a martyr in between now and when He returns triumphantly in glory with all His saints behind Behind him to declare once and for all his lordship over all of history and every nation and all people. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise benefits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with lyre, with melody to him, with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song, play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Another video my dad showed me yesterday was awesome. It was a worship service, I would rightly call it, so at least... As it was represented in those moments, it was a man singing the Lord's Prayer. Now, aesthetically, all things were equal. Both buildings were amazing, beautiful. Both situations, that is the Muslim so-called Christian unity worship service and this worship service, both of them, everyone dressed to the nines, suit and tie, full orchestra, and everything else. But as this man sang, it was not a call to worship to a false god. A God who's a tyrant in the heavens that has no redemption in the propitiatory blood of His Son. No, this was different. This man began to sing, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. When Psalm 33 opens up with a call for shouts of joy, it is because of the reality that Jesus exemplifies in the Lord's Prayer. It is because of the reality that God reveals Himself in the Old Testament and takes place in every believing heart that we ought to be motivated to bind together in beautiful, powerful, glorious instrument accompaniment and unified praise and worship to Him. If we keep the form and lose the substance, 
It is an abomination and a stench in the nostrils and ears of our God. Man thinks that he can sanctify anything by just adding a melody. Man considers in his rebellion against the Lord anything worthy of praise. But that is not true. To the God who rules in the heavens, who is upright, whose work is done in faithfulness, it says in verse 5, He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of His steadfast love. If our expressions of art, of song, of praise, of declaration, of unity, of service, of glory that we celebrate of any kind are not rooted in righteousness and justice and God's steadfast love as He describes it, as He defines it, they are false. They are no longer worship of the true Almighty God. They are stench in His very nostrils. An integral aspect of worship is countenance. Expressions of worship befitting the, uh, the upright. I use this word countenance. There's a form or a putting on. There is a cloaking of ourselves in the attitude and heart of worship that rightly takes up instruments and lifts voices in melody to Him. But this variety of mode must focus and terminate on the King of Kings. So that skillful playing, singing of new songs, of the stringed harp, and making melody to the Lord, and the lyre lifted up and praise would be a pleasing offering to the Lord. By this standard, we could ask ourselves a question culturally today. Culturally, what do we consider worthy cause for celebration? Think about the radio stations you scroll through in your car. Every song is a celebration of something. What are they celebrating? Are they celebrating the word of the Lord is upright? All His work is done in faithfulness? Do the songs of our day see worthy cause for celebration in the steadfast love of the Lord? Or do they see cause for celebration in the fickle, frail, romantic promise of love between humans? Do the songs of today appeal to the heartstrings of our base and carnal, depraved nature and find a unity there? They find something to relate to there? Are we unified in song and glorious celebration or attempts to bring a celebration worthy of praise? Are we unified in our sin nature or are we unified in the glory of God? Bach, the famous composer, if you see any of his original compositions, you'll always find at the bottom, I'm told, the initials S-D-G. S-D-G. It's abbreviation for the Latin Soli Deo Gloria, which is a, a motto that we've picked up and attached to our church here. For God's glory alone. There is no worthy expression of art or song or joy or celebration that we t- participate in that could not be signed with that signature for God's glory alone. If we indulge, embrace, promote, and value anything that is not worthy of that signature, let us reject it for what Psalm 33 would describe as unequivocal worship. Worship that lifts up the Lord. Recently, I was... We were planning on what we would do for the Super Bowl. It might be kind of fun to get together. We ended up live streaming it at Joel's house. And uh, the feed, the internet feed was, was very bad. So it was kind of like a bitmapped version, like a 1970s Atari game or something version of the Super Bowl. None of us cared too much. I'll tell you, church, this is to encourage you. One of the most encouraging things to me this year has been 
nobody knowing where they were going to watch the Super Bowl because nobody really has cable anymore. I think that's awesome. I just realized that recently. I was on the internet and I heard and I saw this uh, kind of tagline for a, a blog post or, or for um, a uh, presentation. The tagline was, the biggest church service in the world, 110 million to attend. The biggest church service in the world, 110 million to attend. So immediately it draws you in. Uh, the next line is so the Super Bowl. <laughs> the biggest church service in the world, 110, 110 million to attend by a technology or physically present, the Super Bowl. The point was, this is something that we celebrate culturally. Shouts of joy are lifted up at the Super Bowl. In fact, the winners, the Seahawks, I am told, regularly break decibel levels with their shouting in their own stadium. Ask yourself if it's a worthy cause. Those shouts for joy when their team that grabs a piece of a pig and runs 100 yards, yards only to be uh, thrashed to the ground and dance around like a, a weird discombobulated chicken? Is that the expression of worship? Is that all we can culturally muster? Is that all we're willing to celebrate? Whatever happened to a culture unified by things that God would consider glorious? Whatever happened to shouts of joy, thanks, and music offered up to Him? And you have only to look at the major award ceremonies, celebrated artists, and all that in our culture to know that it's high time for us to regroup behind the glory of God and generally to shun these expressions that do such a disservice to the name of our holy God. Think about the countenance of the worship or the songs that you embrace, whether they are befitting the upright. Secondly, think about the content. The authoritative power of God's word is the motive force for all these varied expressions of song. Read verse 4. For, lift up shout, loud shouts, for the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings, I'll pause there. Two messages ago, we talked about the amazing fact that you and I, Gentiles, assuming there's no Jews in the room, have been brought in to the covenant community of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, we have been made adopted heirs, sons and daughters of Abraham. Romans 11 tells us that if we ever take that lightly, proudly, and in a cavalier fashion, we are in danger of being cut off. When we consider the ramifications and historical redemption of our own salvation, we are to be prompted to worship exactly in the way that Psalm 33 describes, in fear. I gave to you an illustration of a man, a, a father, that pulls his son from certain death as he rides his bicycle off a cliff at the last moment. And we asked ourselves, what would we feel if we were the benefit of that rescue? Would we feel joy? Certainly. Only joy? Certainly not. A sense of awe and fear and respect. A sense of undeserving rescue. A sense of the steadfast love worthy of a lifetime and a lifestyle of rejoicing in. These scriptures say 
that the word of the Lord made the heavens above, and by the breath of his mouth all the hosts came into being. He gathered all the waters in the sea, put them in the storehouses. When we consider the creative power of our God and the saving power of our God, we ought to do what Psalm 33 describes in verse 8, stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. Let all the earth fear the Lord. He commanded, and it stood firm. By the word of his power, which is the content of worship, this world was created. And by the word of his power, you were redeemed. The Bible says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If the creative power of the universe had not been an incarnate man and revealed the kingdom of God to us and offered his own blood as our sacrifice, you and I would have nothing to celebrate today, no capacity for worship coming from our heart or our lips, hopeless and without God in the world, and as Hebrews describes, hopelessly captive to the fear of death until our termination in utter and complete and eternal judgment and suffering in hell forever. It is the authoritative power of God's Word that ought to hold our attention. God's Word that is the genesis and sustenance of all that we know and experience. The beginning and the end. The Alpha and Omega. The Creator, the Maintainer and Sustainer. The Genesis and the Sustenance. This warrants fear and awe. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Why? For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Everything comes to be by the word of God's command and everything stands firm because of His continued word of His power holding the universe together. This is a reality and a truth when it dawns in our heart that warrants fear and awe. These are worthy themes of praise. Number three, counsel. Countenance, content, and counsel. The nations versus the Lord. There is a different well which people draw. The wisdom of man, the spirit of the age, really original sin in all its varied forms is boiled down to the same thing all over again. There's a division in Psalm 33. It's 22 verses. Notice between 10 and 11, we see a contrast brought to bear. Verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Again, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. But the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Here we see in both structure and in quality in this psalm, the answer to who says... In other words, there are other voices that say, this is worthy of praise, or I am authoritative, or I am powerful. Nations bind themselves together, and they imagine by their consolidation of power that they are the ones who speak, and so it comes to be. That they are the ones who command, and so it stands firm. That they are responsible for holding the unity of people and hope for the future together. This is their counsel. Interestingly enough, in our society, in the higher echelons of the ruling elite, there are groups like the Council, CFR, Council for Foreign Relations. What are they? They're a group of self-aggrandizing, co-affirming experts who study all these things and then draw on their expertise and all of the wisdom of man to advise presidents, heads of state, influential figures, and this is how I think we can keep the balance of power. This is how I think we can move forward in peace. 
But in those negotiations, as they issue their reports, it's invariably the council of the nations. What will it be reduced to? Nothing. Death, destruction, judgment. Why? Because God will not suffer competitors for His glory. And He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord, however, stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. And this is why blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom He has chosen as His heritage. We make recommendations based on the power to impress. And we collect that power to, himse- to ourselves and consider the constructs of man impressive. It becomes an idol. It becomes a declaration of war to the King of Heaven, saying, I am worthy of praise. I am to be trusted in. Who will win that battle? Nothing will stand before our great conquering Lord. And in the final day, the nations themselves will be used as a rod in His hand to destroy one another. And when He confuses His own enemies and they wreak His will in their own destruction, it will be seen by those who are awakened in their heart that the Lord is God, His counsel alone stands forever, and there is nothing that can stand in opposition to Him. We watched a debate uh, on Wednesday night this last week between the creation worldview and the evolutionary, modern, scientific consensus worldview, the origins of where we came from. Bill Nye, the science guy, one side, representing humanistic evolution. Uh, Ken Ham, on the other side, representing biblical orthodoxy and origins. Very fascinating. As I listened to the whole debate through the rest of this week at work, there was a constant reference in Bill Nye's rhetoric to the reasonable man. You can almost put it in capital letters. I, the reasonable man, finds that incredulous, extraordinary, uh, troubling, to say the least. Now, if you listen very carefully... And read, and read through the... Well, he said it straight up. If you listen to Ken Ham, he would make authoritative declarative statements. Not on him, the reasonable man. He would say time and again, there is a book. Written by... It was an eyewitness account of the one who's responsible for creation and the only one who is there. I take that book as authoritative and as the only just and true accounting of where we came from. And so those man's butted heads, and I'll tell you, without repentance to another God, one or the other, their positions are irreconcilable. There is no unity between the two. And God demands unequivocal worship. And it was encouraging to see such a bold stance taken in a context that would vilify and make fun of and say you're bad scientists and you're ridiculous and you hold to primitive notions where less reasonable man came up with fanciful explanations of where we came from. This is one example where the counsel of God meets the counsel of man. Eventually, God, through the mouths of His faithful servants who echo His words, will have the last laugh. But in the meantime, it's important that we stand on the only foundation that there is. And we declare that the counsel of the Lord the author and finisher of our faith and creation, that the plans of His heart will endure to all generations. That's how the counsel or the wisdom or the truths that undergird our worship ought to be taken into account when we think about who we are going to ascribe glory and who we are going to defer to as an authority on things. Are they worthy of respect, reverence, honor, and praise? Even if they are a consensus of well-studied scientists with uh, PhDs behind their name, college degrees, and a bow tie or whatever? Does that grant them the authority to be listened to and be taken seriously? No. The only thing that grants authority is the Word of God. 
and the counsel of God. Fourthly, contrast. As we see these integral aspects of worship, there's this countenance where the outward form of worship is worthy because of the content. Point number two. Number three, the counsel, that is the authority on worship, must be seen as the Lord of glory alone. And number four, there's a contrast. There's a conflict illustrated by social concerns. That is, when a people worships the Lord versus worshiping false idols, when those two clash, it takes manifest form in an example like this. In Psalm 33, verse 13, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on the inhabitants of the earth. Notice where God is. He is sitting enthroned. What does that imply? Lordship, absolute rule, total control, governance of the universe, cosmic authority, unquestioned. That's where he is. What is he looking upon? He's looking upon the inhabitants of the earth whom we find in verse 15. He who fashions the earth from them and observes all their deeds, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Do you see where people's confidence lies in the world? By contrast, there's a conflict between the worship. When you analyze where people place their hope between the spirit of the age, the kingdoms of this world, the counsel of men, and the glory of God and His kingdom and His ways and means in Jesus Christ alone of redemption. The key to worship, listen to me, is not religious tolerance. Key to blessing is true worship, not religious tolerance. We're hoping to achieve peace by coming together under some banner in these examples that I've given today. And if we do so as a slight to the Lord who sits enthroned and looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth, we have done His name a disservice and we are moving our hope from Him alone into other things, ways of man, constructs of man, things like great armies, a warrior who has great strength, or His war machine, or His technology, war horses and great might that ultimately can never rescue. The key to blessing is unequivocal worship. Even when we feel the most insecure because enemies are encamped all around, let us go to the Psalms. No doubt you feel under financial pressure because of the woes we find ourselves in. No, no doubt you feel some of the national uh, implications and security implications of the news of the day. No doubt you might feel less safe when you're out, even with your family in public places and so on. But it is a powerful testimony to who you worship. In those situations and tests, if you can demonstrate by your heart, by your attitude, by your confessions and your actions, where your true security lies. Is your true security in the things and the constructs of man? Or is it in the glory of God, in His ways? You see, salvation and social security, salvation and national security are inextricably linked. This is to say... What you conceive of as your safe haven or your safety net is linked directly to your God. You see, the safety net and the safe haven that those who do not worship God run to in verse 16, great armies, warriors who promise hope and change, false war hope, is a, or a war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. 
Don't become distracted, church, by the promises of security that deny the lordship of Christ. They may offer you a meal tomorrow, a retirement package, and health care, or whatever the candy is today. The carrot in front of the mule leading us straight to hell, away from safety and security and salvation, seems solely reposited in the Lord of glory. We worship Him when we demonstrate by our commitment to righteousness and truth. Do you remember what God loves? Righteousness and justice and steadfast love. We demonstrate our commitment to those things by refusing to place our hope and security in anything less that this world comes up with. That's how we show that we worship the true and living God. Our ideas of security, not just in the spiritual abstract, but even in our day-to-day livelihood, are directly connected to who is our real provider. Who is our real security and protector? Is it the Lord of glory? If it is, then you're embracing the unequivocal worship that Psalm 33 displays. It's a contrast to the world. The world finds ultimate security, at least they declare it in their heart and in their affections as so, in the constructs of man. But we are like Christ, maybe no place to lay our head, but we take up our cross and follow Him. We count all things lost to gain Him, as Paul said, but dung that we might press forward to the prize. What used to be success and security for us, we put aside for the cross of Jesus Christ before us, rejecting the world behind, following Him in His commitment to glorify God at the expense of His own body. As Paul says, we bear the mark of Christ's own suffering in our life as we are willing to endure the affliction through honor and dishonor, through famine, riot, sword, shipwreck, and the intolerable persecution or the the intolerance and persecution of the world around us. Don't miss the opportunity, church, to display unequivocal worship by being willing to stand as contrast to the world's schemes by placing your hope in real measurable ways not in the false constructs of man who trample on his justice and make a false promise, but instead on the security that salvation in Jesus Christ alone supplies. And finally, cognizance. Countenance, content, counsel, contrast, and now cognizance, which is an awareness, a consciousness, an awareness and awe. Verses 18 through 22, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who will hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Notice the connection between favor and fear. In verse 18, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love. The eye of the Lord meaning the watchful, loving, steadfastly so eye of a gracious Heavenly Father. There's a connection between a state of reverential respect, fear, and awareness of the glory of God and the power revealed in the creation of man and His righteous judgments that is directly connected to the favor that he has on his elect and on his beloved. I was particularly touched in Rachel's testimony when she shared how a loving Heavenly Father, even when she was caught in her rebellion, nevertheless had favor on her. 
And I caught from her sharing it today a sense of fear and a sense of worship overflowing in her own affections, realizing that now. Such that the eye of the Lord, being graciously on her as you, a believer, have truly experienced, I trust, that eye of the Lord being on you doesn't inspire a kind of childish, juvenile, teenage rebellion, kind of adolescent disregard, staying out late past curfew, and spending your future inheritance like a prodigal, but instead a fear of Him, a running to the worship a running in worship to His mercy seat in confession of your unworthiness, of your depravity, and that your hope, your hope is in His steadfast love. This is the kind of awareness, the kind of awareness of favor and fear that is to be connected in the cognizant worship of the believer, the unequivocal worship that Psalm 33 describes. Also, there's a livelihood, dependency, soul and body on Jesus Christ. We are dependent on Him for our next breath. The book of Isaiah says, How dare you, in so many words, reject the Almighty God in, whose, uh, in, in your lungs is His very breath. And so it is when we realize the state of our utter dependence on Him that we realize our utter hope is in Him that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our hope for our next breath, our next meal, our next drink of water, our next encouraging conversation, our next thought that my life is hid in Christ, and our salvation itself, eternal life, hinges in one and the same place, the author of salvation and the giver of life. And finally, under cognizance, the love of God is righteousness and justice. At the end, when the psalmist begins to close his statements by saying our heart is glad in him, because we trust in His holy name. In verse 22, he says, Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. That steadfast love is described in verse 5. The steadfast love of the Lord is an extension of His heart towards us, but if it's in line with what He loves, it's an extension of righteousness and justice to us. It says in verse 5, He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. That is to say, if God has extended His steadfast love to you, He has also extended righteousness and justice. This is shocking. And if it were not for the blood of His Son, it would mean our utter and total judgment and destruction. How can God extend in love to you righteousness and justice? Only if the justice for your sin is satisfied in the blood of Jesus Christ. And here the psalm finds its fulfillment in the fullest sense in the cross of Jesus Christ our Lord. God's love toward us is steadfast, upholding His justice and His righteousness all the while because the blood, the precious blood of His Son was shed for our salvation. And in that blood shed is our hope. So perhaps a summary definition of worship from Psalm 33 could be stated like this. Worship is our consciousness of His consciousness of us. How God sees us in Christ, when we realize and meditate on that, that will equip us with the content, the countenance, the counsel, and live by contrast to the unequivocal worship, worship vision of Psalm 33. 
Worship is merely affirming to God, echoing back to Him, declaring the truth of Scripture, of the truth of His love towards us in the blood of His only Son. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we thank You for the power of Your Word. The power of Your Word to set us free to a life of worship, glorifying Your name and holiness. This is a work of sanctification that's accomplished by the Holy Spirit in and through us. This is a work that you do sovereignly in the heart upon coming to the cross, which allows us, Lord, the pathway towards repentance and the pathway towards advancing your kingdom rather than standing opposed to the rule and reign of the almighty King of heaven. I pray for everyone in this room, as a consequence of your word declared today, that we would be further equipped to advance your glory as we worship you in spirit and in truth, taking cues of that definition from Psalm 33, so that whether we gather here in praise and worship or wake up and open our Bibles in the morning, that we would be faithful to honor and glorify you, Lord Jesus, in more and more ways, so that we might be judged worthy, Lord Jesus, to receive that admiration or that affirmation from glory, Well done, my good and faithful servant. If any of us in this room are so privileged to hear those words, we already know from the book of Revelation what we'll do. We'll join the faithful who've preceded us, casting our crowns before the Lamb of God and sing only one word over and over. Holy, holy, holy. We thank you, Lord, for your truth. May it be written on our hearts as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen.